Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. We are online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook, on Twitter, and check out our YouTube channel. My name is Barry Eisler. I'm a novelist, a blogger, former CIA. I follow uh, Jeremy pretty closely online, and uh, I think that's what qualifies me to be your moderator today. I am super excited to be talking to him about this great new book, which I finished, I don't know, maybe an hour ago at a tea shop right around the corner. I've had a busy week, and uh, I I did the best I could to get to it, but today I I was able to block out time. It is a fantastic book, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about it from from the fellow who wrote it. So please give a, a big warm welcome to Jeremy Scahill. All right, the first thing I want, to, uh, I want to ask a little about is that this book, unlike your previous two, uh, Blackwater, Rise of the World's Largest or Most Powerful Mercenary Army and Dirty Wars, this was uh, a group effort, I mean, well, all books are group efforts, but this one you wrote uh, with a number of other people at the publication you started with Glenn Greenwald and Laura, Laura Poitras, The Intercept. I have a feeling, yeah, there are a lot of people here who are regular readers of The Intercept. I know I am. I'd love to hear a little about what that process was like, how you drew on the expertise of your colleagues and put together this book. Um, well, first of all, it's a great honor to be back here at the Commonwealth Club and, and with so many of you. I, um, I, I spoke in Berkeley last night, and I was shocked to see anyone in the audience because of the Golden State game. But um, <laughs> you know, they did come, um, so it was cool. Uh, you know, I uh, uh, I should say that uh, you know my my start in journalism didn't begin in any journalism school uh, because I, I I you know I, I like to say I was enrolled in college but I didn't attend college um, and I went to the Amy Goodman uh, School of Journalism at at Democracy Now and. Um, <laughs> You know, and 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 uh, and I, I really think the reason why you know almost 20 years later I'm still a journalist is because I entered the world of journalism not uh, through the lens of someone that that wanted to uh, master the AP style of reporting, um, but someone who believed that journalism is not a career; it's a way of life. And and I learned that um, from Amy, and I studied journalism as a trade the way that um, a plumber or a carpenter would would study a trade and not something that's only for the elite or the wealthy or people that uh, somehow manage to be good students. Um, And some of the best journalists that I know didn't study journalism or didn't go to college. And, uh, you know, when when we started The Intercept, um, it was kind of a wacky, crazy story. Glenn Greenwald, who I had long admired and read, and and he and I had this sort of 
online relationship of comparing notes for many years. Um, Glenn was at The Guardian and I was at The Nation at the time and we were talking with our friend Laura Poitras about um, starting a news organization. Um, and the idea originally was that it was gonna be kind of just the three of us and then we would try to raise enough funds to hire a few other people to do it. And um, I uh, uh, went down to Rio, where Rio de Janeiro, where Glenn lives in Brazil. And um, it was sort of like entering, Glenn lives at the top of a huge mountain. You know, he and, and his partner, David Miranda, who's also an amazing person. Uh, you know, I, it took me like four hours to get through Rio traffic and then the taxi driver couldn't find Glenn's place and eventually found it. But Glenn has, at the time, I think it was 12 dogs. Now I think it's 15. Um, <laughs> And it was like, uh, like canine planet of the apes, where it was just like the dogs rule everything. They, you know, they, the entire house outside, inside, everything is their, you know, sovereign domain. And then they have like wild monkeys that jump through their trees and, uh, you know, eat bananas and then throw the peels at the dogs. And, and Glenn, Glenn had just, uh, you know, gotten, uh, you know, the Snowden uh, archive and was finished with the initial push of that story. And I land in Rio, the day after David Miranda, Glenn's partner, uh, had gotten back to Brazil after having been detained um, in Britain for nine plus hours, most of it without a lawyer, uh, on, um, uh, under an anti-terrorism uh, law in Britain and uh, under suspicion that he had classified documents and was, was essentially a courier. Um, and, and this surreal scene played out in front of me where you've got you know, a dozen barking dogs, monkeys throwing banana peels. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, who I'm sure many of you have seen on television, he generally wears a suit and a tie. Uh, but but if you if the camera had panned down, you would notice that Glenn actually is wearing like surfer shorts and flip flops in the studios when he does this stuff. So Glenn was like sitting, you know, out on his porch, dogs barking, banana peels flying, monkeys jumping, um, and he's just like pecking away at his computer, writing stories based on Edward Snowden's documents. And, um, and, and he and I were working on one story that ended up becoming the first story that we ever published at The Intercept, which was called, you know, which, which was about death by metadata, how the NSA aids the CIA in the and the military in uh, hunting down and targeting people for death by drone by tracing and tracking their metadata or their communications. Um, and while I was there, uh, Glenn got an email from Trevor Tim, who is a, a great uh, electronic privacy advocate, activist, uh, and a wonderful writer. And he made an introduction between Glenn and a guy named Pierre Omidyar, who was the uh, creator of eBay and one of the wealthiest people in the world. And Pierre Omidyar uh, basically said to Glenn, after they started emailing, that he wanted to start a new news organization that he had been considering buying the Washington Post. Uh, which Jeff Bezos, of course, bought then for $250 million. Um, uh, and, and, and he wanted Glenn to be a part of it. And so, and it was at a time when Glenn and Laura and I were discussing creating a new media organization. And so we ended up on this crazy ride uh, backed by, I think he's now the 57th richest man in the world, uh, to create an independent news outlet. And we managed to uh, broker an agreement with Pierre Omidyar where we have full editorial autonomy. And the only time we ever hear from Pierre now is when he sends the occasional note to say, good job, or, you know, that was an awesome article that you guys wrote, but we generally don't hear from him at all. Um, and one of the reasons, the reason I tell that story is because 
one of the reasons why, I mean, The Guardian is a fantastic publication. The Nation is a fantastic publication. But we, 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 wanted, to do, we wanted to do news and, 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 and provide information in a way where we weren't beholden to um, any kind of a restrictive editorial process. It wasn't that we didn't want fact-checking or editors or, or, or peer review. It was that we wanted to really try to create a place where we could do the kind of journalism that we wanted to do that would be driven by the journalists themselves. Um, and we had spectacular fails, failures in the first year of our operations. And a lot of, some of it played out in the media and it was, some of that was true. Some of it wasn't, but you know, we, we decided not to really respond that much. Um, and we, we started using platforms like uh, secure drop, which is a, uh, a, a, a digital file transfer platform that allows people to use secure anonymized browsers and other security, uh, tools to, anonymously, confidentially, and securely leak documents. And, you know, I would say that a, a fair portion of them are crazy people that are sending us documents on that who, while crazy, also have figured out how to use this somewhat complicated system. Uh, but we also have gotten really solid uh, information. Um, and some of our stories have been based on people anonymously, and we have no idea who they are, providing us with documents, um, including about uh, the violation of the rights of prisoners uh, to have private conversations with their lawyers. And we obtained the phone logs uh, showing uh, that in prisons across uh, the South in the United States and elsewhere, um, that in fact their calls were being recorded and monitored. Prisoners' calls with their lawyers were being recorded and monitored. And my colleague uh, Jordan Smith and, and Michael Lee did reporting on that. That was entirely based on an anonymous source that had provided documents to us securely through SecureDrop, and to this day we have no idea who that person was. It's an incredible sort of thing, and it raises questions about, you know, in journalism ethics, because a lot of news organizations would not do that. They would not take information from a source that they couldn't validate. Um, but it's not just through those platforms. It's, it's through personal relationships with, uh, with people of conscience who work within the government. And uh, this book is ma was made possible by an incredibly brave uh, individual who worked within the assassination program on what the Obama administration calls its high value targeting campaign. And this individual came to a conclusion that what they were a part of uh, was not only against their moral uh, values and their principles, but actually was uh, in direct contradiction to the stated mission of the drone program, which is to confront uh, and erode terrorism. Uh, and so at great personal risk, uh, someone who worked within this very secretive program provided us with a wide range of documents that for the first time allowed the American public to view primary documents um, on the United States uh, assassination program. And uh, this individual gave us the documents uh, knowing that the Obama administration was engaged in a war, an unprecedented war against whistleblowers, where people who provided unsanctioned information about what was actually happening uh, around the world in the assassination program, uh, that people who are providing information about unconstitutional activities or war crimes are being labeled as traitors and being charged under the Espionage Act in record numbers. And, and yet that this individual persisted and said that they believe that the public had a right 
to assess that information and read it to determine uh, their own viewpoint on whether or not this policy is in our national interest, um, is moral, is lawful, um, and is the right policy for the United States to be pursuing uh, in the, uh, under the idea that we're trying to stop terrorism and, uh, or confront terrorism. And so the, uh, this, this book is a compilation of the work of uh, many, many of our colleagues at uh, The Intercept. Uh, and we decided to make it a kind of flat model um, of, of reporting this so that we could do justice to each aspect of the documents that someone had risked their liberty, their freedom, their public reputation to provide to us. And um, the book that we ultimately have published, uh, all of the proceeds from the book are going toward uh, the nonprofit journalism that we're doing at The Intercept. No person that participated in this journalism, including myself, will make any money off of this book. It is all going to go toward the journalism. And that was my decision to do it that way. Uh, I, I technically could have uh, you know, signed a book contract, but A, I think it would have been uh, morally dubious for me to do that, given that uh, I am not the one who took the ultimate risk for this. Um, and, and B, uh, because we believe in trying to uh, build an independent news organization where sources feel like they will be protected, defended, um, and the integrity of what they leaked will be preserved when we report on it. So that's a very long-winded answer to Barry's very brief um, question. Um, but I, I, I also want to, uh, uh, before I hand it back to, to Barry, uh, point out two individuals who are here tonight. Um, one is my incredible colleague, Josh Bagley, who did a lot of the uh, journalistic data visualization and visual journalism that made up the drone papers when we, when we originally published it. And his contributions to the book have been scattered throughout um, in the form of helping to visualize very complicated issues about drone warfare and civilian deaths, uh, et cetera. And he's here tonight um, with his parents. And I also want to point out um, Sean Westmoreland, who is a whistleblower, who worked on the drone program and very bravely uh, came out a few months ago and began speaking very publicly and critically um, about the drone program and the counterproductive nature of it and the amoral nature of some of the strikes that end up uh, killing civilians. So I, I would hope, especially for, for, for Sean, that you uh, express the gratitude I feel for him for having blown the whistle, and he's here uh, tonight in the front row. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. 
It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. For me, that wasn't long-winded at all. I want to listen all night. You know, I think I might have been remiss in failing to have mentioned the title of this book in my opening remarks. I was so giddy that I forgot to say. (laughs) The book is called The Assassination Complex. For those of you listening on radio and uh, later to watch on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and all that here at the Commonwealth Club, The Assassination Complex. And... uh, uh, as, as a writer who is fascinated by uh, euphemisms and other linguistic dodges, the first thing I thought when I saw the <clears throat> title of the book was, thank you for calling it the assassination complex instead of, say, the targeted killing complex, which is what the government would have preferred. We had debated the high-value, fluffy bunny, humanitarian, <laughs> saving us from the world <laughs> complex with the subtitle of, it's really complicated, but vote for us in November. But it it just somehow, it was like, you know, the publisher said, well, it might not work. It's a little bit, you know, eh, Trump voters may not buy it. So we were, we were talking uh, just before we got started here about, about some of the terminology that's laid out so, uh, so well substantively in the book, but also so well visually. I mean, it's really, uh, uh, for a book that deals with a lot of complex topics, it's, I wouldn't call it an easy read. It's a disturbing read, but it's just beautifully laid out. Um, one of the things that struck me is that the military uh, calls the distances it has to cover in, in droning people to death the tyranny of distance. We were laughing about that in a bit of a morbid way because it's kind of weird that it's like it's so tyrannical that it's so hard for us. Dude, it's what the founding fathers meant when they talked about <laughs> fighting against tyranny. They meant like how far you have to fly the drone in order to kill people. Everybody that's, knows that. Yeah. And my, Paul Revere, that's what he meant. My, per, my personal favorite is uh, this juxtaposition between something that's called a jackpot, which is when the drone kills its intended target and what's called an EKIA, enemy killed in action, which is when the drone kills someone other than the intended target. And I thought, that's the government, that's your tax dollars at work. The drones never fail. Either they get a jackpot or they kill the enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> never anyone else. And they have another term, which is touchdown, which is when they, they either uh, blow up the phone or they seize the phone in a night raid, but they didn't get the person that they thought would have the phone. They, they, the consolation prize is still called a touchdown. Um, and then people who are trying to flee the scene of a drone strike are called uh, squirters, um, you know, in, in, internally, which is really a, a, a sick and twisted, yeah. uh, you know, way of, of viewing all of this. But, um, uh, you, you know, when we were analyzing these documents, um, it, it took a while before it really occurred to us that the language that's used in these secret and top secret slides and documents to describe 
what is really a program of hunting people yeah. um, is a very kind of sanitized corporate language yeah. um, where, where you never quite acknowledge what it is you're actually uh, doing. Um, but it's, 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 it's like, you know, the market analysis for targeted killing is, 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 is sort of the sense that you get from reading these um, documents. And, uh, and sure enough, we noticed uh, uh, in the lower right corner of some of the slides uh, that they were prepared by the IBM Corporation, the National Security Division of IBM. And when we began to research uh, the slides and IBM's role, we discovered that IBM was taking language that they had used for creating slides for corporations that are not hunting human beings and adopted the exact same language to use in describing the hunting of human beings. And, and, and the banality of the kill chain and how these uh, decisions are made and the way that the bombing of human beings is described is in language that would be more common on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange than it would be in the International Criminal Court, uh, where it, it is almost as though they're transacting widgets instead of killing people. Uh, and the term, you know, the reason why we called the book The Assassination Complex is because every president since Gerald Ford has upheld a, an executive order that states that the United States does not engage in assassination. And this grew out of the period where the CIA was overthrowing governments, uh, you know, in coup d'etats, uh, Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala, Mossadegh in Iran, and then the domestic assassinations in the United States, Martin Luther King, the Kennedy brothers, Malcolm X, others. Uh, and Congress, you know, finally got around to holding hearings on all of this. And, and Gerald Ford, his administration, was the first to implement an executive order that stated that the United States will not engage in political assassination was the phrase that he used. And, and remember, Ford's you know, brain children at the time were Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. Donald Rumsfeld was both the youngest and the oldest Secretary of Defense in, in, in US history. And these guys had, a, they, they really embraced the Federalist paper on the unitary executive, the idea that when it came to war policy, there was actually a dictatorship of the executive branch of government in that's, the United that's States. The, that's the word they use, dictatorship. Right. Yeah, the, yeah it's, it, it is a dictatorship that should not be subjected to any meaningful intervention from Congress or any legal review from the Supreme Court because, as, as Nixon said, if the president you know, does it, it's legal. Uh, and that was really the mentality <clears throat> that they quietly continued to uphold without blatantly saying it. So the idea with the original executive order banning assassination was that it has no teeth. It, it only exists in an environment where if Congress doesn't challenge it, it's fine because it's not a law. It's just an edict issued by an emperor-like apparatus that represents one-third of the checks and balance system in the U.S. government, except it has excluded either of the other two uh, checks or balances from the equation. And so Ford issues this thing. And, and then they tell Congress, you know, you don't need to legislate this at all. And so to this day, Congress has never officially defined the term assassination and has never enacted a, a piece of legislation that would uphold the principle of the United States not assassinating, assassinating anyone. In other words, like they, they've, they've never actually made a law about this. 
And, and that's not an accident. It's not like, oh, I'm pointing out some oversight of Congress. Anytime any individual member of Congress through history has suggested that we should legislate this issue, it's been shot down by the leadership of both of the established political parties in the United States. Jimmy Carter, when he became president, um, edited the uh, executive order and he removed the word political and said, well, the United States shall not engage in assassination. And then he added agents of the United States, representatives or contractors of the United States. And you know, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, all have upheld more or less the same version of this to this day. And all of them have conducted authorized assassinations. When Reagan tried <clears throat> to kill Gaddafi in 86, no, 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 that wasn't an assassination, that was a leadership strike. When Bill Clinton authorized multiple airstrikes uh, against Saddam Hussein's palaces, and maybe he would be in them, maybe he wasn't. No, no, those were decapitation strikes aimed at diminishing the uh, military capability of the regime. And now the Obama administration has really popularized the term de jour targeted killings. But in reality, what the US is doing is running a global hit squad, where instead of whacking people with a sniper rifle on the balcony of a hotel, they are taking people out by uh, drones that are a weapons platform to deliver hellfire missiles um, around the world. And, and Congress has been uh, not just remiss in its duty, but has actively, uh, at its leadership, prevented uh, the American people from having a real debate on whether we want to be a society that embraces assassination as a central or any component of our foreign or domestic policy. Yeah, if you think about <clears throat> how easily the Bush administration was able to get around actual legislation, domestic legislation and treaties prohibiting torture, just by coming up with this new thing, enhanced interrogation, how hard is it to get around, once you start doing this to the language, how hard is it to get around uh, a mere executive order by saying it's not an assassination? Well, it's, it's a, a two-edged sword, killing. too, because executive orders can be a damn thing. You know, where they, where, you know when, when, when Bush would issue certain executive orders and Obama has done the same, they actually carry quite a bit of weight when the White House wants them to sure. and when Congress doesn't challenge it. Um, you know, the White House clearly does not want the ban on assassination to carry any weight and Congress wouldn't dare challenge it, particularly in this context. But executive orders are also a really serious problem because when they are wielded by people like Bush and Cheney, and unfortunately also like Obama, it is a backdoor way of uh, circumventing uh, democratic processes sure. and checks and balances. Yeah. So actually that, <clears throat> I have one more question. I have a lot more questions of my own, but but there's just a whole handful of great ones from the audience. But, but since you mentioned that, <clears throat> there's an obvious connection um, between the information that Snowden leaked to, mm. um, to Glenn Greenwald, Laura Poitras, The Guardian, and what the source, uh, this person who's known as the, the source in the book, The Assassination Complex, and what the source has uh, brought to the intercept, and it seems like the common, I mean, among other things, the common thread is this notion that extremely consequential decisions are being made by the leadership of this country with no chance for any sort of public debate, let alone scrutiny. What is your own view on all of that? 
Well, I mean, first, first of all, I would highly recommend that uh, everyone read the New York Times magazine profile of, of Ben Rhodes, one yeah. of the top national security officials in the Obama White House. Um, in, in my view, and I, I know a lot about Ben Rhodes, but in my view, uh, Ben Rhodes, who is one of the key people making decisions about uh, you know, what wars Obama should authorize and get involved with in covert action, it would be like going into a fraternity house and, and moseying on over to the beer pong table and saying, hey, do, uh, do any of you frat brothers want to decide who we bomb next? I mean, it, it really is like Obama is surrounded by these frat boys who somehow have been given incredible authority over who's going to live and die around the world on any given day. And they're having a great chuckle, and you see this in that article, uh, over the fact that they can manipulate most journalists. Because as, as Ben Rhodes points out, you know, you've got people that are 27 years old, they've never been anywhere around the world, they don't have any actual in-the-field reporting chops, and we can manipulate them and essentially write their stories for them. This is how our foreign policy is being conducted. Like, there's a joke. Anyone who spent any time in Washington knows that you know, Washington is largely run by like people in their mid 20s. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and, you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And that's true on Capitol Hill and elsewhere. It's largely run by people in their, in their mid-20s. Uh, and, and most members of Congress don't have more than a couple of aides who really don't know their ass from a hole in the ground about anything in the world and somehow are given incredible ability to make recommendations to senators and, and, and congressmen. It's not every congressional office, but it's a lot of them. But, but the idea that we have this clique of, of, the, of, the, of the Obama bros that are somehow deciding 
who lives and dies around the world should be really disturbing to anyone that cares about uh, you know, a democratic process or having a real debate about what our foreign policy should look like. So, you know, I, I, I think that whether it's Obama or it's, you know, Hillary or it's Trump, uh, there's a permanent parallel apparatus that exists in this country uh, of people that are not elected, they're not appointed, and can wait out any particular administration. And that's really a disturbing Which, aspect when, of when we're talking about other countries like Turkey, we refer to as the deep state. But we in America do not have a deep state, so fear not. We also don't have an oligarchy, we have an establishment. I could go on about this because I love, I love that kind of stuff. It just makes me happy. We have, we have factions while they have tribes. We have detention centers while they have the gulag. It's, it's amazing. Once you start seeing the way, the way these things are used, we have a government, they have regime. They have a regime. It's always like this. Just interesting the way language gets used to deposition our adversaries and, and bolster our uh, image of ourselves. So um, you've, you've already covered a few um, uh, questions that have been coming in, but just a related question someone just asked, do you think, uh, given the political culture, do you think the, uh, the stance on assassination would be different if debated publicly? So if, if there were the, uh, the kind of public debate that you think a democracy would engage in, uh, do you think the policy would change? Not necessarily. Um, you know, I think... Uh you know, just to speak briefly about the current political, uh, you know, the election going on, uh, the three major candidates who are still in the race um, for the presidency, uh, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, all support the kill list. Uh, and, you know, for, for, for people who, you know, really think that Bernie represents a radical departure from the way things are, I, I think in a lot of ways he does. He has, he is saying things about, money in politics right. and who actually controls our electoral process in this country that are that that are su it's such a breath of fresh air to hear someone who is breaking records with fundraising and and new voters and all that there's so many things that are great about what Bernie Sanders represents in this country however uh Bernie Sanders when asked uh, a couple of weeks ago by Chris Hayes at an M MSNBC town hall meeting uh Chris Hayes actually asked him directly and used the phrase kill list. He asked him about Obama's uh, kill list and the process of secretly giving people the death penalty who have not been charged with crimes. And Bernie Sanders said that the way that Obama is administering it, I support it. Bernie multiple times has said that he supports drone strikes and the use of drones in operations around the world. Hillary Clinton, it's like, you know, I, I won't even bore you with running through <laughs> how much of an empire candidate she is, but she was, and documents in our book specifically show her role, Hillary Clinton was one of the top officials who was signing off on every single target that Obama was authorizing for assassination. She was a daily part of the process of creating the kill list that then was you know, unleashed uh, around the world. And Donald Trump, and I think that there, there's a much more complicated conversation to have about the ramifications of the Trump presidency when it comes to, or the Trump candidacy, sorry, uh, when it comes to these, uh, God forbid, uh, when it comes to these issues. And that is that, uh, you know, I, th I think a lot, you know, the, the sort of meme that's developed is like, you know, oh, Trump is the, the doofus, taco bowl, you know, bigot, semi-fascist reality TV show. 
Um, and I'm far less interested in like what Trump says than what Trump is revealing about our society. You see, Trump is really just kind of the, the light in the closet that lets you see what's actually on the hangers. And, and what's on the hangers of America is a lot of fascism. And it's, it's a fascism that, that existed before Trump and will exist after Trump. But Trump just sort of by his very being in this election has turned a, a strange light on in the closet that lets us see a, a strand. And I don't think it's most people in this country by any stretch of the imaginations, but there is a substantial minority of people in this country that really seem open to overt fascism, uh, uh, American nationalism that is actually a, a racist, bigoted war against other people. Um, and, you know, and so, so to me, the Trump candidacy is not about what he says on any given day. It's looking at the support he's actually able to garner. In the same way, Hillary Clinton's candidacy show, shows us something incredible about what else is hanging in the closet about the sameness of the establishment Democrats and Republicans when it comes to what is called America's national security policy. I would not be shocked if the weekly standard, the organ of the neocon movement officially endorses Hillary Clinton because she is already lining up top neocons. Max Boot, who has never met a war he didn't want other people's children to fight, was one of the main people who, who stepped forward to say, Hillary is our candidate this time around. So, you know, our options there are the guy who's showing us the fascism in the closet uh, and, 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 and the candidate who is showing us how similar Donald Rumsfeld is to Joe Biden. And that's a pretty disturbing commentary on our society and, and where things stand when it comes to the issues that Barry and I largely focus on, which is uh, what, what the U.S. government calls counterterrorism or national security policy. It's interesting that um, what you call the kill list, which is just plain English, the government calls the disposition matrix. Yes, they That's have. Fantastic. Yes, right? they have. Uh, that was, I think, that was John Brennan's uh, yes. invention. They and they also internally they would call, you know, Brennan. Well, when they weren't characterizing Brennan as like the reincarnation of Saint Augustine, who was like That's a priest to Obama. Literally, literally, not literally, literally the reincarnation. Do you guys know but, literally yeah. this is how he was? <laughs> Brennan was. They said that Obama views Brennan as a priest. And that, you know, Brennan is, is basically like the incarnation of, oh my Lord. And having been raised in a Catholic <laughs> household, I'm just like so horrified at this whole thing. But, um, but, but, but Brennan, when he, before he was CIA director, was the drone czar. And he was the guy that came up with the, 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 the sort of magical formula that Obama could use to wage smart war. And, you know, you have to remember... Obama had very limited foreign policy experience when he became president of the United States. Um, I mean, he had been in the Senate. Uh, he definitely had a much more cosmopolitan international background than most of the people that are in the U.S. Senate today who are largely old white guys. Um, but he didn't have much foreign policy experience other than limited committee assignments that he had uh, when, he, when he got to the Senate. So, you know, a guy like Obama who is campaigning on, on a lot of ideas that I think a lot of liberals like to hear, the moment that he becomes the nominee and defeats Hillary Clinton in the primaries in, you know, leading up to the 08 election, Obama then gets briefed by uh, General Michael Hayden uh, at the time, and, uh, and he gets an all-access briefing from CIA and other intelligence agencies. And he emerges from that briefing in the federal building in Chicago 
as a much more hawkish candidate for president. And I think that, you know, if you look at a combination of two things, the fact that Obama was inundated by the generals, by the heads of, of the dozen and a half intelligence agencies in this country, um, by all of the chatter and intel that these guys could throw at him saying, if you don't continue these Bush era programs, we're going to get hit domestically. If you take those warnings to Obama and then crass, sarcastic, vicious political operatives like Rahm Emanuel, whose entire obsession from the moment Obama won was second term, second term, second term. When you combine those two factors, it's a dangerous cocktail that, can, can, that, is, that is running American foreign policy. And so what ended up happening was you had a combination of the permanent shadow state, the deep state, pressuring Obama to embrace JSOC, CIA, paramilitary ops, drone strikes, on the one hand, as the solution to preventing another terrorist attack. And on the other hand, Rahm Emanuel saying, boy, if we have a, 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 another major attack on the United States, we're going to only have a one-term presidency here. And I, and I actually think that Emanuel was probably right. The Republicans would have utterly destroyed Obama had there been a major terrorist attack. But that's political considerations are not, not how you administer foreign policy or national security policy. So we ended up in a situation where Obama embraced what I think in good faith he thought was the least bad thing. But what he ended up doing was empowering a global hit squad that is going to endure beyond his administration and will operate regardless of if Trump or Hillary Clinton is uh, president of the United States. And on top of that, Obama used his credibility as a constitutional lawyer by training. Uh, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He energized so many young people in particular, turned them onto politics. He has spent his credibility dollars to normalize assassination as a central component of uh, American foreign policy and has managed to codify as the law of the land policies that Dick Cheney would have never been able to enact in anything even vaguely resembling a legal way. And that's that's the raw deal here. Like that is the the unvarnished truth about what happened under Obama. He made it possible for the phrase President Trump's kill list to be uttered in this country. That 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 is a possibility. And I wonder how many liberals who said, "Oh, I trust Obama with the kill list." You know, I'm fine with drone strikes. Oh, an American citizen being killed? Yeah, well, you can drop me a, a percentage point on that support. That was that was a real thing that was happening at the height of the drone wars. Liberals, MSNBC's viewers love the drone strikes. How many of those people, if polled on just, what do you think about the phrase President Trump's kill list, would say, great, love it. I don't think a lot of them would, and I don't think Bernie Sanders would either. But he wasn't asked about a President Trump kill list. He was asked about a President Obama kill list, as though there's a such thing as a Democratic cruise missile and a Republican cruise missile. There ain't. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. This is the Commonwealth Club of California program, and we are talking to Intercept co-founder and investigative reporter Jeremy Scahill about Jeremy's latest book, The Assassination Complex, Inside the Government's Secret Drone Warfare Program. I'm Barry Eisler, your moderator. You can hear the Commonwealth Club programs on the radio, catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and see program videos on our YouTube channel. And sometimes you might actually be able to see me signing someone's arm on Twitter which happened last time I was at the One of Jeremy's favorite things to do is to okay. sign body no, parts. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you should see the lower back tattoos that Barry has. No. All right, anyway, sorry. Go ahead. So, yeah, just that last point. Um, it's, I mean, it's even broader than um, you're only talking about one aspect, but it's not just the notion of a presidential kill list that has been made bipartisan. I think even more insidiously, Obama, by purporting to prohibit torture, which is already illegal, normalized it as policy. Because the notion of a president prohibiting something that is already by treaty and statute illegal makes no sense. It's, uh, it's like the president banning murder or rape or arson or embezzlement. It wouldn't, you would say, well, what, that's not what you do. There are already laws against those things. So while on the one hand, it's better to have a president who prohibits torture rather than a president who permits it, in fact, these are two sides of the same coin, and what one president permits via executive order, another one can reverse by executive order. And this is, this is another aspect of Obama's legacy that I think um, people on the left are, are going to have a hard time grappling with. Not to mention the permanent, of impris- permanent due process fee- free imprisonment of people, which we refer to as uh, indefinite detention because it sounds a little better. Well, and you know, you know, I mean, what's what's interesting in in the reporting that we did about this, one of the people that that agreed to do an interview with us, which I was kind of astonished when I was on the phone with him, was Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who is a legendary figure in the world of special operations. He was the intelligence chief for uh, General Stanley McChrystal 
when he was the head of the Joint Special Operations Command and is a very pugnacious figure within uh, the, the U.S. Uh, uh, covert operations and special operations world. And, and one of the things that, that Flynn said that I actually agree with is that you know, what, what, what has happened as a result of the drone program is that the U.S. can no longer uh, question terror suspects. They're just being killed by Obama, uh, you know, by edict from Obama. Um, and, and Flynn hypothesizes, and I think it's possibly true, at least it's certainly partially true, that Obama is expanding these drone operations and the, you know, the assassination operations because he doesn't want to put anyone in Guantanamo. Because he said, I'm going to close this place. And it's still open to this day. Because he, he said, I'm going to shut down all these secret prisons. But then what do you do with all of those people that you have chatter on and intelligence on, etc.? I mean, the, the problem is, unless Obama was to back away from the idea that this is a war and instead view this as a very serious crime, plotting terrorism, nothing is going to fundamentally change. You know, I mean, o o Obama has before compared the, uh, the drone program to uh, dealing with a sniper on a roof of a building who is pointing uh, the rifle at children on a playground. And he says, you know, I understand what the ACLU's objections are and human rights people and stuff, but do we need to go to a judge to get authorization to take that shooter down before he kills a bunch of kids on a playground? No, we don't. And I think I would imagine everyone in this room agrees with that. If you have someone who's going to kill a bunch of kids and they're a sniper and they're not, you know, they're not responding to any kind of attempts to get them to put the rifle down, you know, people probably in this society overwhelmingly would say, yes, if we need to kill that person, we'll kill them. Uh, the problem is that's a fake analogy. They have never provided a shred of evidence that a single person that they have killed in a drone strike represented an imminent threat to U.S. persons or the security of the United States. They have never given a shred of evidence to suggest that they killed someone en route to putting a bomb on a plane. Now, if I, I guarantee you, because the, what, this White House leaks like crazy, if they had that evidence, they would put it out there. And, and, and that's fine. If their standard was just, we're killing people that we think maybe in the future might, in certain circumstances, try to encourage others to commit acts of terrorism, if that was the policy, okay, that's what they're doing. But that's not what they say the policy is. They say the policy is that we're targeting people who represent an imminent, imminent is their word, threat to U.S. interests, U.S. persons, uh, and, and uh, U.S. facilities around the world. If that's the standard, then you have to say, well, what is the definition of the word imminent? There was a white paper of the Justice Department leaked in advance of John Brennan's nomination uh, or confirmation hearings to be CIA director that had a definition of the word imminent that not even the most barely literate English speaker would recognize as the definition of imminent. It basically was like, if you've ever thought about terrorism in your life, we can kill you in a drone strike. So, you know, they, they, they're already playing with language on all of this stuff. And uh, President Obama has lent his political, moral, legal credibility, legacy credibility to this program. Bef before we, we go on, I just want to read for people because this person can't do it. I just want to read, if people don't mind, a little bit of an essay that the whistleblower 
who provided us these documents uh, wrote, and we published this in the in the book. And um, uh, and and this also references the fact that we published the um, U.S. government's rule book for how people end up on the watch list, the terror watch list. There are multiple watch lists. Over the past few years, and mind you, this is for people listening. This is not my words. This is the source of, of all of this. But I want to bring this person into the room because they took the real risks for us to have this conversation today. Over the past few years, we've heard a lot about President Obama's secret kill list. Yet still, we know virtually nothing about its implementation. Despite mild congressional scrutiny and ACLU lawsuits directed at the shroud of secrecy, some basic questions remain unanswered. How do you get on the list? Am I on the list? Who put me on the list? How do you get off the list? Can you get off the list? The truth is there are several such lists used to target individuals for different reasons. Some lists are closely kept. Others span multiple intelligence and local law enforcement agencies. There are lists used to kill or capture supposed high-value targets, and others are intended to threaten, coerce, or simply monitor a person's activity. However, all the lists, whether to kill or to silence, originate from the terrorist identities data mark environment, and they are maintained by the Terrorist Screening Center at the National Counterterrorism Center. The existence of TIDE is unclassified, yet details about how it functions in our government are completely unknown to the public. In August 2013, the database reached a milestone of one million entries. Today, it is thousands of entries larger and is growing faster than it has since its inception in 2003. The March 2013 watchlisting guidance, which is the document that we obtained and published, lays out the broad criteria for nominating someone to the database. Not only does the Terrorist Screening Center reserve the right to store your name, date of birth, and other basic identifying information, but it also stores your medical records, transcripts, and passport data, your license plate numbers, email, and cell phone number, along with the phone's international mobile subscriber identity and international mobile station equipment identity numbers, your bank account numbers and purchases, and other sensitive information, including DNA and photographs capable of identifying you using facial recognition software. The National Counterterrorism Center collaborates annually with agencies from the international alliance known as Five Eyes to supplement any information missing from entries already in its database or to add more entries. Individual entries in the database are assigned a TIDE personnel number, or TPN. From Osama bin Laden, TPN 106 3599 to Abdul Rahman Awlaki, TPN 2635017, the American son of Anwar al Awlaki. Anyone who has ever been the target of a covert operation was first assigned a TPN and closely monitored by all agencies who follow that TPN 
long before they were eventually put on a separate list and extrajudicially sentenced to death. When governments begin to tally enormous enemies lists, they run roughshod over our essential checks on power, especially when they consider their own citizens to be a threat. Of the more than 1 million entries in the TIDE database, approximately 21,000 are those of American citizens. By leaking this information, I hope to give the public an opportunity to know what kind of activity might lead to their being placed on a list used to monitor their everyday activity. For the first time, the public has an opportunity to gain insight into the criteria that could potentially lead to their own trial by drone strike. In 2008, I shook hands with Senator Obama when he came through my town on his way to the White House. After his inauguration, he said, quote, transparency and the rule of law will be the touchstones of this presidency. I firmly believe those principles are crucial to an open society, which is why I was compelled to reveal this information. If this administration lacks the courage to uphold its promises to the people, then I and others like me will do so for them. That was the statement provided by the incredibly brave individual who someday could be arrested and charged with espionage or treason for having had the audacity of courage to say no. The audacity of courage to say, I believe the American people have a right to understand what policies they're even debating. These are people in our society that should be held up as heroes. And if the government comes from them, there should be rebellion in this country, in the court of public opinion, where people say, no, the line is here. But instead, we've got David Petraeus, who's able to leak all he wants uh, to make himself look like Superman to his mistress. Hillary Clinton can run a secret server in her bathroom. John Brennan can put out propaganda uh, in the aftermath of the bin Laden raid about how amazing it was and how bin Laden's wife was put in front of him and how there was a fierce firefight and the official leaks program of the White House can endure. But God forbid Chelsea Manning leaks a video of a helicopter, an American helicopter crew gunning down civilians and Reuters journalists and then circling back around to take out the first responders. God forbid someone would blow the whistle on warrantless surveillance on American citizens. God forbid that someone like Thomas Drake would actually have the audacity to try to go through the system while he was on the payroll of the NSA to blow the whistle internally, only to have his entire career ruined, his name smeared, forced out of three decades of government service where he was decorated to have to now work at an Apple store. The fact is that when Edward Snowden made the decision to leak those documents in the way that he did, he studied what the government of the United States of America did to people who tried to go through official channels. And he saw, like Bill Binney, that they raid your house while you're in the shower. They smear you. They call you a traitor. They try to intimidate you. And that's why he did that. That's why he's in Moscow today. All of those people who are sort of, you know, telephone tough guys, when it comes to denouncing Edward Snowden, 
Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.